Hey everyone, it's Sam, and welcome back to the Noon Podcast. I'm thrilled to introduce you to an extraordinary guest, a friend, and a colleague of mine for over a decade who has served as a firefighter for many years and is nearing retirement. Despite his long career, he still exudes a youthful spirit and an unwavering energy which I find truly inspiring. I can't wait to delve into his experiences and insights on firefighting, his own mental health, and the rewards of peer counseling. I hope you'll find them as fascinating as I do. Throughout his career, Rob has accumulated a wealth of knowledge and skills that are truly impressive. He embodies the kind of resilience and determination that we can all learn from. People like Rob are a rare breed, and I have no doubt that his story will leave a lasting impression on all of us. Before we begin, I want to give a shout out to Rob's personal projects, Skulls for Hope and Next Run, which you can find more information about in the description of this episode and on my website, samspursuit.com. They are both incredible initiatives that showcase Rob's commitment to helping others and making a positive impact in his community. So without further ado, let's jump into the interview. Welcome, Rob. Thank you for joining us on 911 Nonsense Podcast. Do me a favor and give me an introduction of yourself. Yeah, uh, my name is Robert Arieta. I'm a rescue lieutenant. I've been an EMT now for a total of 20 years, uh, 18 almost, no, 19 with my current department. Um, but yeah, I've just been doing that. I'm the peer support director for Next Rung, a nationwide nonprofit, and I founded Skulls for Hope, a local nonprofit that we're growing. So That's fantastic. Yeah. Um, before your you know, fire department stint. Did you do anything else? I sold cell phones. You sold cell phones? <laughs> and they I worked won't. in a call center, but nothing. <laughs> no. No, no EMS prior to that? No. Okay, awesome. Um, is this something that you're looking to continue for a while longer? Uh, the mental health side of it, yes. What we're doing right now today, yes. Um, I, when I'm eligible to retire, I'm going to see where I'm at and how I feel. Um, I don't want to do this very much longer in the field, but what I very much want to do is I want to stay involved with our brothers and sisters and just anybody else that's dealing with mental health issues. Um, I feel like I've made way too many mistakes and I've fallen under every single category of issues we can have in this field. And now that I'm on the other side of it, I, I hope um, I'd like to kind of do the same for others and hopefully help them avoid some of the same pitfalls, and you'd be blown away, and I actually think you wouldn't be blown away, but uh, how often people think they're alone in their struggles, and they think how little their struggles are, but the minute you share your story, it, it triggers them to understand that, wow, this person feels exactly like me, and I'm going through the exact same things. Yeah, no, that's awesome, and that's kind of why we are starting to hopefully integrate this podcast into a more raw format where we get to see what the person is seeing and what they're dealing with. So when you said that you've gone through a lot of, or you've had a lot of mistakes, can you elaborate on that? Oh gosh, is this, I don't know if we have enough time. Feel free to cuss. Um, yeah, no, uh, honestly, I think, I know we all get into this job with the best of intentions. Um, I've talked to enough uh, paramedic and EMT students and firefighter cadets that I think when you haven't seen things or you haven't been through those calls, um, it's always interesting to hear and you can empathize with somebody, but until you experience those things, um, I don't think you know what it feels like. And then that's when you kind of learn what you're going to do and how you're going to deal with it. For myself, um, alcohol has always been an issue. Um, It was never like that bad of an issue uh, until I started having flashbacks from calls. Uh, When I did that, I 
call it self, I, I didn't know it then, but it was self-medicating is basically I just wouldn't sleep. And um, I've shared this before is that the call that I had that triggered me to have flashbacks and kind of sent me on this path um, was I, I would take NyQuil the first couple nights because it would put me to sleep. I wouldn't dream and I'd wake up. But, you know, you obviously sit back and you think, well, this isn't normal. And what is normal is alcohol. And so for me, it'd be, okay, cool. Well, I'm not going to do NyQuil, but I'll have a couple of drinks just to take the edge off just to relax. Um, I didn't know it at the time again, but what it would also do is it would trigger my anxiety and my just dark thoughts is the best way I can put it is I would go to a very dark place instead of being in a good place. Um, this was, I can tell you the story now, but this was over the course of, gosh, now 13 years. And when it first started with the drinking, it was fairly manageable. And I would say for the next 10, it was manageable, even though I had bad habits. Um, and I've gone the whole gamut of like, I even tried sleeping pills. I, I, I did Ambien um, and unfortunately mixed that with alcohol as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was just literally to just numb and just to pass out. And unfortunately, like I said, is there's just a lot of things that I did um, when I was intoxicated that I probably wouldn't have done if I was sober. I don't think any good person would. And so that's been the biggest struggle in sobriety for me is to understand that that truly isn't me and that wasn't who I really am but I chose to drink and I chose to do all these things that turned me into a different person and I don't know if if I'm telling this correctly but uh, I think this is why we all end up in a, in a very dark place and I know for myself I never thought I was suicidal because I didn't have a plan um, but in talking to a few widows that I knew uh, or know now um, I was on the same similar path, um, maybe not as far down, but I, I just, I didn't care anymore. Um, through counseling, I, I learned that even my home, uh, my ex-wife called it a pod house. And I always thought it was funny because it was set up like a, um, a staged house. Mm-hmm. But part of the reason I learned through counseling was if something did happen to me, that I didn't want people to go in there and have anything personal, anything that they would have to take out of there, like a picture of me or anything like that. So it was very, very put together, but it didn't look like somebody lived there, if that makes sense. Sure, yeah, like you were just there to visit. Mm -hmm. And and again, so when I tell this story, it sounds very tidy. Um, This was over, like I said, 13 years. Uh And I did a, a, a local TED Talks is, I think, when... I kind of turned that corner to becoming an alcoholic um, because I had never shared. I had shared the story like I, you knew a little bit about it. Um, friends that I trusted knew a little bit about it and knew about like my reason for making the bracelets for Skulls for Hope and things like that. But the general public didn't know my story. And I really didn't think anything of it when somebody offered, said, hey, you should apply for the local TED Talks. I said, sure, why not? And I just kind of went for it. Um, I didn't put a lot of thought into what I was going to be doing when I was ripping the Band-Aid off. And I don't think I was ready for it. And so it was no fault of TED Talks. It was no fault of of my job. It was no fault of anything. It was just me not knowing how to handle my emotions and not having the right, I guess, support system and counseling and things that I should have been more uh, paying more attention to. Um, But I ended up starting to drink quite a bit after that. And it was just more of like a kind of a tailspin. I guess. Mm-hmm. And so unfortunately, those three years um, were a lot of heavy drinking. And 
a lot of numbing and a lot of uh, self-sabotage. I think I was trying to implode my life and I was hurting people that I shouldn't have hurt and doing really ridiculously stupid things that I wouldn't have done if I had a handle on my life. Um, but luckily, because I'm involved in some of this stuff, I was able to reach out and I was able to admit that I had a drinking problem. And mind you, I knew I had a drinking problem, but I wasn't ready to stop. Mm-hmm. Uh, but three, three years, two months ago, um, I ended up finally giving in and I ended up in rehab. And so now it's interesting because I've been advocating for probably six years, um, but it's night and day um, what I do now compared to what I was doing because it was easy for me to help you and tell you what you were struggling with because I related to it, but I wasn't doing anything to fix it. And it goes back to that whole saying of you can't fill from an empty cup. And I was very much trying to do that. So, And I think that's what a lot of us as first responders do is we reach out and we help others. And we do it so we don't have to help ourselves. Or if we're helping our brothers and sisters, it's because if I do that, I don't have to focus on my own issues. Right. And it's it's doable, um, but it's not doable forever. Sure. And so, yeah. That makes sense. No, that's, it's really good that you were able to separate yourself from that. You mentioned how it's a lot different today versus how it was back then. You know, we've both been in the field kind of mm-hmm. a similar amount of time and Granted, social social media is not as old as we are, but uh, you see now, and I don't know if you've also noticed, but you know, a lot of the providers on my social media, not a lot, but there are some more that I'm seeing now that I didn't see before where they're talking about being sober and how long they've been sober. And these are people that I worked with for years and you're like, I had no idea. That's crazy. Mm-hmm. Like I, I wish I could have helped or I wish I could have done something different to better help them um is there something that you would get like some advice that you would give to people kind of in that middle stage where they're tied down but they don't know how to help so i've had quite a few people ask me understandably um like well how do you know how do you know when you're an alcoholic or how do you know when you're drinking too much or or if you should stop and i always tell people if you're asking that question it's something that you would probably want to address. And even if you're not going to stop drinking, because um, not everybody's an alcoholic, obviously. Not everybody needs to go to rehab. Um, but it exists for a reason, and the term exists for a reason. I don't walk around with any of my diagnoses and, and say, oh, I have PTSD, I have anxiety, I have depression, because nobody needs to know that unless it's a direct conversation. I also don't just freely say I'm an alcoholic because it's not a fun thing to say. But I did have somebody ask me once, who said, well, and it was from somebody that worked at the rehab facility. He's like, Rob, do you think that you were an alcoholic or that you had a drinking problem like you? And I was like, you know, I'm going to always say an alcoholic because I do a disservice. And if you start to nitpick and try to say, oh, I wasn't an alcoholic. I just needed to stop for a while. I said, that's where you have those pitfalls. And so I think a more direct answer for what you're asking is if you're recognizing certain things, like I can look back now And I didn't know at the time because I didn't think about it because it was more about how I was feeling physically and like, oh, I need a little bit more. I need a little bit more. Um, And what you said about like, oh, people had no idea uh, or you had no idea about certain people is I was about a half pint to a pint a day on my days off, um, no matter what. And looking back, it's scary and it's saying, wow, like how how was it even possible? But when you're in the midst of it, it doesn't seem like anything. And so... If you're a first responder, if you're a doctor, a nurse, whoever, 
and you are, have a routine that revolves around alcohol, whether it's like, oh, I'm going to meet my friends, and you have a couple of beers with your friends, and then you come home and you have a couple of mixed drinks, or you just keep that feeling going, or you have, like, I can't tell you how many times I woke up on the floor of a friend's house, or like my poor son, who was one of my biggest supporters, like, I, you know, he, he jokes about it now, um, but he would say, oh, remember that time you fell asleep on the couch and I played video games all night? And I was like, oh yeah, we both know I didn't fall asleep. But collectively, like you try to get through those days. And if you can collectively step back from your situation and say, yes, I'm doing this. Yes, I'm doing that. Or if you, because most of the people are doing the same job we're doing, right? Yeah. So if you can put your work hat on. And if you had somebody like you come into your office, if you responded to someone like you, what would you tell them? You know, because that's the the hidden or the silver lining of our job is it's the whole idea of see something or if you see something, say something. And we have that opportunity with a lot of people that are in crisis or in a bad place. And I can't tell you how many people that have drinking issues that we respond to all the time that I treat differently now because I'm them and they were me. And so I think it's to see something, say something. I think if you're in crisis or you don't know if you're in crisis and you're not in counseling, that's something that a counselor can help you work through and kind of sift through. Because for me, like I said, it was numbing. It wasn't for anything other than I didn't want to see certain things. I didn't want to feel certain things. And I didn't know how to process them or get rid of them. And counseling actually taught me that you don't get rid of them. They will always be there like, mm-hmm. for the rest of your life. But you can still live a happy life. I I was watching that new was Emergency NYC. I've heard a lot about that one. I haven't watched it yet. I was watching it uh, with my wife today, and they were transporting a baby that was critical, and they were bagging her. And I just, like, I started tearing up. She looks at me, she says, do you want me to turn it off? And I said, no, like, it's fine. Like, it's it's a trigger, because I've been there, and the sirens in the back of the ambulance and all that. I said, but... I, it doesn't do me any good to just avoid it. That's where I, why I got to where I got to. Like, I, it sucks and it's sad, but it, it's just, it's a part of me. Because you know? now you've been given the tools to handle that, right? Mm-hmm. Whereas before you may not have had the tools to work with those triggers. Mm-hmm. Is that how you would I think it? so. I, I, I always call it like rehab for me was a foundation. Um, it's Rehab is a lot of intense counseling. It's a lot of stripping everything away and you're in, in treatment with people that are having the same issues as you and they're very comfortable telling you what's wrong with you, what you're doing incorrectly um, and it breaks you down and it builds you back up and that's the thing is now I have a foundation to um, bounce back from I guess and I guess the best way I can say that is when I got back from rehab I spent about two years without having a peds call mm-hmm. and then the last year and a half I've had three and um, I can tell you after every single one, I very much craved wanting to drink because I wanted to numb. But I was able to tell myself, okay, you want to get shit-faced because you don't want to think about what happened and you just want to numb. Well, you obviously have tried that already. It doesn't work. What are you going to do with this? How are you going to do that? And like you said, is this, so yes, I would say uh, treatment and counseling has given me the toolbox, but the kind of hidden thing I've had to tell people is nothing's gonna fix anything. Like life is gonna be hard no matter what. After I retire, bad things are gonna happen and we're gonna always have excuses to self-medicate, to be angry. Like 
whatever you want to say. Um, and I think counseling, talking like you and I are, like this is selfishly bigger, better for me, I think, than what I'm doing for you because I get to say what's in my head and mm-hmm. I get to get it out and I get to kind of sift through it. So I just, I always say stay involved uh, with whatever makes you happy or whatever fills your cup. Um, working with other first responders to help avoid what I've done um, fills my cup, but it also keeps me sober. It also keeps me going and it helps me to process the horrible things I still see. Would you say that your being an alcoholic stemmed directly from the PTSD that you experienced on the job? Um, I think it's uh, all part of the process. I think that there, I, I could say yes for me individually, but there's a reason that not every first responder is an alcoholic. There's a reason that not every police officer is. I think that um, not knowing how to handle my emotions and not really, like, I guess I grew up upper middle class and I kind of had a pretty sheltered life and I was very lucky uh, with my family and and the things that I saw. And when I decided to do this job, um, you kind of get thrown to the wolves with calls, period. Mm-hmm. And you see the absolute other side of the coin. And I just don't think I could process sometimes what I was seeing and what was going on. But again, the first 13 years of the job, I had seen stabbings, shootings, I had car accidents, a million of those, and nothing really affected me. And it was just the one call that really kind of turned the corner for me. And then after that, you see more and more, and things accumulate and things accumulate. But... Um, I would say it plays a part. I just struggle with like, this is an amazing job and the opportunity that we have is amazing to be in these people's lives at their worst moments. I just don't think we do a good enough job of creating a foundation for our mental health so that we're ready to see what we see. Um, If in my wildest dreams, we would be able to make a requirement in an EMT class, in a fire academy, that you have to have a connection and see a counselor. Like, and you may not have to see them, but once every six months, but have that connection with somebody that, at a professional, that when shit hits the fan or you're in crisis or you're not doing well, that you can reach out and you know exactly who to go to. Um, there are so many first responders that I talk to that are grudgingly will, will do counseling. But if they have a bad experience or they just don't vibe with that counselor, they're done. Yeah, they shut it down. And then I did that. I, I went once, really didn't connect, and I didn't go for another three years. And that was my fault. But if we, I feel like if we say, hey, I'm going to talk your ear off. I'm going to tell you the stuff that you might see. But it's not going to hit home until you experience it. But when you do experience it, just know that you're going to, the reason we're asking you to go to this counselor is not because you have mental health issues. It's not because of whatever else. Like my wife and I go to preemptive couples counseling because we want to have a foundation for our relationship. And that's the thing of, of counseling is you should have a foundation for yourself. You're supposed to love yourself. And I'm doing things backwards right now is I love others, but I still struggle today with even liking myself, let alone loving. And I know that's going to be the key. When I get to a point where I can say that and mean it, it'll be a great thing. But I, I think I did myself a disservice by kind of doing everything backwards. And that would be one of my keys to hopefully hopefully trying to stop this from happening or at least kind of have a buffer. Sure. I think that 
you know, because you talked about maybe doing it in EMT school and, mm-hmm. or any other kind of school. You know, I think I think there's a, a lot of missed opportunity in high schools um, mm-hmm. in setting kids up for real life. You know what I mean? Um, but going back a little bit, you talked about um, the one call that had kind of turned the corner for you. Do you feel mm-hmm. comfortable talking about that? Yeah. Yeah, no, that's fine. It's uh, I mean, it's out and pretty much everywhere, but it was a uh, it was an accidental drowning and uh, the child was the same age and size as my son, and I think that's why it really affected me. Um, it, it's just, and I, and I spent probably about twenty minutes doing CPR, and so um, I just got to see every feature and a lot of other things that I, I just I don't I don't know for whatever reason that call is just very very vivid from the green grass to um, the hospital to so many different things and. Like I said, it was the first time that when I closed my eyes, it's all I saw. Mm-hmm. And like even talking about it now, like I can still see it perfectly. And um, at least for me now, and it took over a decade, but the child's my why. It's why I started Skulls. It's why I started making the braces for myself to kind of like recenter myself because I've responded to thousands and thousands of calls. And I've still seen, I don't even want to count how many pediatric calls I've had. Um, but I think the correlation to it is that I could tell you all the details from start to finish, how that exact call went, but what people should take away from it is that every single first responder I've talked to, and I've talked to so many through Next Rung, and I've talked to so many just because people know what I do, and we all have that one call. And what it ends up doing, what I learned through my counseling was I tried for three years after that call to get back to where I was before it, and I can tell you for sure without a shadow of a doubt from the dispatch that day to coming back to the station felt like a million years. And my life has never been the same since. And it yeah. wasn't the fault of anybody's. It's just that's what happens. That's what, whether you're a police officer, a nurse, a doctor, you were, have that call. You're going to have a situation that marks you. And you got to realize you'll never be the same person but you can still be happy. And it's what you do with these feelings and these emotions and these memories and how you honor these people and their families or whatever you want to do. But I feel like for me, kind of honoring them or remembering them for who they were to you in that situation or however you want to create it. I don't know. I'm, I know I'm rambling a little bit about <laughs> it, but um, just understand that if you haven't had it already, you're going to have that call. And it may take five years. It may take 15. It could be six months on the job. Um, but it's going to hit you hard. And you got to figure out how to process it because I didn't. And I even start, I started processing it maybe three years after it happened mm-hmm. and took another 10 to, to really like to tear apart every single part of it and what it meant and what it meant in my life kind of thing, if that makes sense. Yeah. So. I think a lot of first responders come into the job expecting to see, you know, the gruesome stuff, Mm -hmm. the bad stuff, the gory stuff, the kids, everything. I think that what a lot of people don't expect is for that one trigger, Mm -hmm. you know, and it could be something completely random. One of my triggers was transporting an intra-facility transport of uh, a lady we were taking her home for hospice because she had pancreatic cancer Mm -hmm. and the color of her hair reminded me of my mother's 
And it just, like, it was sad. I held her hand. She cried the whole way because every time we moved her, she was in pain. And there was literally nothing I could do for her. But I just sat there and held her hand and cried because so much she reminded me of my mom. And I think people don't get that. You know, they're they're expecting it to be like, oh, dead babies everywhere, dead people, dead bodies, dead whatever, you know, and that's not always the trigger for people. It's going to be something that affects you personally. And that's hard to explain to people. No, and I think you explained it way better than I could have because that's absolutely true because I've talked to people that have been like, oh, I've had a bunch of kid calls, but it doesn't affect me. And they're like 22 years old, uh, don't have their own families, things like that. They're like, it's messed up, but... You know, it's what we signed on for. And I'm like, no, I get that. And you hit the nail on the head with it's something that will trigger you to to something you know and something you love. Because I could even see it in your face when you're sharing that, um, how it still affects you. Mm-hmm. And what I try to tell people in your situation, too, and I'm sure you already know, but it's just that, like, you say you couldn't do anything, but you did. You, you holding her hand, you showing emotion, period. Because I can't tell you how many survivors, how many widows, how many family members that I I stay in contact with or meet or talk to that say thank you for not being a robot. And I've even had people say, hey, like my son committed suicide and the first responders were terrible. Like they showed no emotion. They told me he was dead and they walked out. And I try to tell them, I'm like, you know, it's not that they're intentionally trying to hurt your feelings or that they don't have feelings. It's that we have to protect ourselves. Like if you give yourself on every single call, it's exhausting. I do that now yeah. because I've come full circle and because it's it's what keeps me going. And it's like what the family deserves, I said. But when they're day in, day out, seeing these things and, and they don't know how to come talk to you. Um, as a matter of fact, there's a first responder I know that wants to have a class taught on death notification because when we respond to these calls, we're never told how to tell somebody that their child's dead, how to tell somebody that their mother's dead. Even these people that I tell all the time that their parent they knew their parents had cancer uh, their grandparents were on their deathbed literally and we show up and they're like i don't know why i'm so upset i i knew this was expected and blah 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 and it's like yeah but they're dead like if i had told you at 5 p.m on tuesday your family member is going to die do you think you'd be like cool good to know i'll be fine like you this is not this is something that's very simple to us because we see it all the time is very profound for these people. And so to me, I'm guessing that what you did for her was very profound. And I think you should hold on to that mm-hmm. and remember that. But again, like you said, it's like, okay, cool. Like I did what I could. I held her hand. I cried. But it also took a piece of me because it reminded me of my mother. So what do I do with this? But I mean, I think, and I could be completely off base, but all that led up to that and so many other things led up to what you're doing right now so today. So many other things. Yeah. <laughs> so many other things. So let's go to a lighter side. And uh, can you tell us about what your favorite call ever is? What's something that brings a smile to your face when you think about it? I don't know. I think uh, I wouldn't even call it a call. I think that the looks you can get when you're in uniform mm-hmm. or especially from kids. Um, but just, I don't know. It's going to sound so cheesy and not a lot of people may relate, but it's just being able to do the job does truly make me happy and when i got to the bare bones of it of like why am i doing this and you and i just talked um offline about like how much we enjoy the job itself and why people get into the job and we lose that over a period of time i think a lot of us do and i came back to that 
And so I, I would honestly say just having the opportunity to do the job we do and on a, it's, it's not on a daily basis that you change somebody's life, but to have the platform and the perspective to be able to share little parts of my story with a patient or with a family or to, it's not a happy memory, but being mm-hmm. able to hold up somebody you've never met before, sure. give them a hug and comfort them in, in a bad moment, I think is, it makes, it fulfills me and being able to do something like that makes me happy, if that makes sense. It does. Have you ever done anything embarrassing <laughs> that you <laughs> that you wish you could go back and change or that you actually just embrace and joke about it? As far as like on a call? In, or? in the job. Oh, God. Well, I'm a firefighter, so take your pick. <laughs> That's the joke. Yeah, I'm just exactly kidding. right. No, um, I think that... As, as you and I both know, because we've done it on calls that we had together and um, being in a firehouse, it's like being a frat. Oh, yeah. And so you oh, get yeah. to, we act like idiots, stuff that people never should see, never will see. But just being, <laughs> just being silly, um, when you see these horrible things, you still go back and you have to eat dinner. Um, and I think in on the fire side of things, we're very lucky that we have a jungle gym <laughs> to to throw stuff in and 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 act foolish in whereas uh some people on the ambulance side don't always have that if you have a good partner that's yes. great um but you don't always have that but it's also why like some of my best friends are on ambulance and we'll stay on scene or i'll write in with them um just to talk to them just to feel better and get a little happier and like we said a little bit earlier is uh that banter is everything in this sure. job, I think that the camaraderie you have in the military, being with your brothers and sisters and being in those horrible situations, it doesn't happen as often in the field, but those horrible calls you go on with people that you know, they'll connect you forever. And then I think you get closer and you know how to help each other heal if you're willing to talk about it. But I think just like there's there's a lot of, I, I would very much say embarrassing things you wouldn't do when you're not at work. But it's that gallows humor, uh, that dark humor mm-hmm. that not many people outside of this career get. But everyone that's done it sees it's it's what helps us survive. So Yeah. I, I'm working in a position now as a flight medic where, you know, we, f- we fly with a lot of pilots mm-hmm. and a lot of newer people who haven't yet seen that side of EMS. Mm-hmm. So the looks that we get that from them is hilarious when you're just bantering back and forth with your partner. Uh, it's priceless. You can't take it back. No, absolutely. <laughs> um, so how did COVID affect you? COVID has been and always will be very horrible. Um, I think it blindsided quite a bit of people as far as like the calls that we went on. I, when it started, um, I had just gone to rehab and I had just gotten back. And it was interesting because the entire world stopped. Yes. Except for EMS, except for hospital. And so I came back to a job. I, I went right back to work. Um, the hidden benefit is the firehouse had a, a gym because every other gym was closed. Yeah. But uh, it was it's just a very dark period. And it was the funniest thing because I'd see interview after interview and article after article about how people became alcoholics because of covid because there wasn't anything to do and i'm like so my dumb ass decided to go (laughs) to go to rehab right then um but i don't know um a group of friends that i had we made the best we could with 
um, the outdoors and things we could do and, and what we could do safely. Um, but that's just a very depressing time. I forget the name of the uh, documentary, but there's a documentary about nurses and patients. Um, I forget where. God, I, I should have brushed up on that, but it was very hard to watch because I think when you didn't have the health issues that leave you predisposed to having the symptoms, like it turned into a political thing, it turned into this, it turned into that, and I always do my best to stay out of the political side, like get your shots, don't get your shots, but as a whole, as a world, like it was a very scary thing that everything shut down, and we had no choice but to keep going and keep working, but even talking about it, it was just terrible. I don't yeah. even have a good. I don't even have a good thing for it. But it places around here looked bad. There's there's buildings that you know of down here that are just not the same as they ever were before. And yeah, then everything's different now. A lot of rioting, a lot mm-hmm. of graffiti. You mm-hmm. know, a lot of damages were done um, to the downtown area here. Mm-hmm. It was that was pretty pretty rough. Would you say that it was pretty isolating for you? as an individual no um my now wife uh she was a very good friend of mine and we kind of leaned on each other um i had two other close friends that i spent time with when we could but uh i can see where it could be for certain people especially certain underserved communities and certain situations um but i was lucky to have that have my ex-wife and my son that even it was different it's like, well, let's meet at a park and let's stay 10 feet, six feet apart and all that other stuff. But uh, I've been very blessed with the family and the friends that I have that we did our best to work through it, I guess. Um, but I know a ton of people didn't have anywhere to go, anybody to talk to. There's people right now with everything open that don't have people to talk to. Yeah. And I can't imagine how dark COVID was for them with having even less available so yeah that was i think pretty rough on a lot of people um would you say that you noticed an increase or a decrease in the call volume at that time when it first happened i think there was a definite decrease i think everybody was scared i think everybody felt like if they would go to the hospital that they would get it automatically or that's where it was and things like that and i think everybody just kind of avoided the hospital um and then for whatever reason the stuff started to open up I think people got more and more comfortable, and then I think the opposite has happened, is it's thousand times worse. Like, post-COVID, medical, EMS, hospital is just terrible. Yeah, it's blown it's up. Terrible. It and is it's terrible. It's crazy. It's not the fault of the individual. It's not the fault of the nurses. My, my wife's an ER nurse, and, like, nurses do so much with so little. Doctors are doing so much. So many primary care doctors retired because they could when COVID happened. And so now you show up in an ER and it's the same size of the ER as it was before COVID, but you're waiting hours and hours longer and you don't realize unless you actually think about it that there's not enough nurses. There's not enough doctors for you to see. Like you can go into one of the 50 rooms that are empty, but there's nobody there for you. And it's just, it's been a byproduct of this whole situation. Nurses that have been doing the job forever or just started with the best intentions and this is all they see. They've quit. They go to do something else because they're being eaten alive. Yeah, and that's what I was going to ask you. Have you noticed a huge retirement movement in the fire department after COVID started? Uh, I don't think it's a, been a huge change. I know that on, on this business model, 
every fire department. Um, it's a very difficult thing to plan and prepare for retirements when there's firefighters, drivers, lieutenants, captains, battalion chiefs that are retiring, but it's never the same ones. And mm-hmm. so you're, how do you preemptively hire for the five firefighters, the seven lieutenants, the X, Y, and Z that are, are leaving with the personnel that you have? Because if you don't have enough lieutenants, you have to promote. But if people don't want to promote, and there's this whole big... Um, complicated thing behind it it's not just filling a filling it up like a, an office space but I don't think on the fire side as much but we talk about levels uh, of how hard and harsh things are and you talk about dark humor but EMS always makes fun of us because we get to do a lot of the fun stuff like when when shit hits the fan and there's nobody available yeah us on the rescue will have to transport to the hospital every now and then but it's few and far between if it's a horrible call we get to write in on. So we get to do, quote, the fun stuff or the stuff we always say that we want to do. Um, but we don't get eaten alive like the people on ambulance do. We don't get eaten alive like the hospital does because on top of the calls that shouldn't be there, the people that shouldn't be going in. And I, I don't even think we could educate the public enough because it's difficult to explain to people, like, this isn't your primary care. And I think we try to be patient advocates when we go to their homes and say, yes, we can take you to the hospital, but you're going to have to wait. And this is why you're going to have to wait. I said, and I, I tell people, I said, the good news is your vital signs are normal. The bad news is your vital signs are normal, which means that you're going to go from the ambulance to the waiting room. You're going to wait 8 to 12 hours. And they're probably going to tell you to go see your primary care or to see a specialist because what you're dealing with right now isn't an acute issue. And people just stare at you and they say, it's OK, I have insurance. It's like, okay, well, we'll take you. But the first time I, I visited the ER and I heard a lady ask, oh, what's the wait time? Like to me, if you're in an ER and you're asking about a wait time, then you probably shouldn't be in an emergency room. You should be in an urgent care. Right. But I also understand that patients have an issue with, like I've been trying to get into my primary care for six months, but I can't. Or my primary care retired and now I don't have one. Yeah. So they kind of get left with no re- recourse other than to go to the hospital. So it's just a gigantic mess. I think it always has been, but I think COVID kicked us in the face and we're still trying to recover from it. But I just don't know if we can with the way that staff is being treated in the hospitals and it trickles down, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I always just try to tell people, you know, try to stay away from the administration side as much as you can because you're going to be hitting your head against a wall. Do it for the person next to you. If you love what you do, find your why and stick to that. If it's because of the person next to you, it's like, because that's who it is. Like when we go on bad calls together and we show up in the same house, admin doesn't matter. Staffing doesn't matter. We have to do our job and I'm not doing it for anybody other than the person next to me. I'm doing it for myself and, and the person that's I'm working with in that truck. Sure. So. That's awesome. So. If you could go back and start all over, would you get back? Would you go to healthcare again? No. No. Be a nun. A nun. No. <laughs> I, I I absolutely would. Um, it's easy to say today. Mm-hmm. Um, I've I've gone through every single phase. If you'd asked me six years ago, I would have told you, hell no, f no, this job is terrible, blah 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 blah, because I was being selfish. I was looking at it from 
what was being taken from me as opposed to what I could be giving. And uh, it's amazing. I, I think I've said it already, but we are in a unique position to actually make a difference in somebody's life. And a, a person I respect a lot told me, you know, we don't save lives, we buy time. And that, like, it stopped me in my tracks because I'm like, well, what do you mean? Because so many of us say, I want to save lives and I want to do this, I want to do that. And it's like, we don't have that kind of power, you know, but what we do have the power to do is whether it's five minutes, two weeks, five years, 10 years, we can buy people time is we can make an actual difference in their life that we wouldn't have otherwise if we worked in accounting, which is, it's a great job, great money. And if that's what you want to do, that's amazing. But when we decide to do these first responder jobs or you do things in this vein, like police officers don't get in the job to be harassed 24 seven and be told how horrible the police department is as a whole. They usually, and I'm not saying everybody, but they usually join. And I know so many of my close friends that are PD do it because they want to help their communities. They have their own horrible story of what they experienced and they want to make that change, you know? And so the long answer is yes. Um, and it's because I've come full circle. And I think that if you can hear this podcast and the other part, parts of your podcast that you have, um, I think that's what people should disseminate from all this is it's an amazing job. And we're very lucky to do it. I think that's been mostly the general consensus. If you could give yourself a piece of advice for when you first started, what would you tell yourself? Don't self-medicate. Talk. Um, my generation, oh man, it sounds old to say that, but my generation <laughs> uh, and when I came in, it was you suck it up. You don't talk about it. You don't. Like, it's fine. Um, but... Unfortunately, it's not fine. I don't think it's ever been fine. Um, I run into retired guys. I just lost um, a retired guy in my department. Um, and we forget that we don't have a support system and that we don't have um, the tools, you know, because we're never taught to have them. We're always told, like, it's fine. Just go on the next call. Yep, you're like, good. Suck it like, out, buttercup. If the, and, and it's across the board with everybody. Everybody says it's a weakness. And in our peer support line through Next Rung, we constantly have people tell us, like, I'm sorry for calling you. I feel like I'm I'm weaker and that I shouldn't be doing this right now. And that's why it's anonymous. But kind of the thing that I try to impart on people is the weak thing is to judge others. The weak thing is to attack others for what they're willing to admit and say that they're having a hard time with. I think the strength is sitting there and saying, I have an issue, I can't fix it on my own, and I need help. And so whether it's the peer support line, whether it's having a bracelet from Skulls to know you're a part of the community or listening, the people that are listening to your podcast, there's a reason they're listening. It's because they're ready to start hearing what they want to hear and kind of getting that bug in their ear like, oh, that's me too. And that's part of the thing is, is the more of us that start that conversation, the more of us that talk, the less there's going to be that stigma. And this is going to become a non-issue. It may not come, become a non-issue in my career. Actually, I guarantee you it won't because I don't have much longer. But we talked about it before the podcast started is I'm blown away. There's, there's a lot that I know every generation says, oh, this new generation is this, is that. And, uh, I'm just very, very encouraged by the fact that the young adults that are doing this job now in their early 20s 
um, they're all talking. They're all talking about the call after. They're saying it messed them up. And we, as the officers that are kind of almost on our way out, I pull people aside all the time. And I, I just had uh, a really intense call with a two-day-old that was in cardiac arrest. And I had a coworker that looked like he had seen a ghost. And on the call, we, I pulled him aside and said, hey, are you okay? And he's like, I have four kids. Like, I'm just, that's, this is a lot for me. And I've stayed in contact with him, and I've talked to him, and I, he, he told me his perspective of what he saw on that call. And what was funny is, is I said, hey, you know what's crazy about all that? And he said, what? I said, did it kind of seem like I knew what I was doing? And he's like, oh, yeah. He's like, it was like you did this, this, and this, and you were doing all these things. And I was like, guess what? He said, what? I said, I was scared shitless. Because I am. Like, we always are. If you sit there and say you're holding a two-day-old doing CPR and you're not freaked out, then you're not human. You know, it doesn't mean you can't do your job. I did my job. But all he saw was somebody that's been doing the job for a while and per him was doing it like well. But inside I'm like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. Like, please live, please live. Well, whatever you want to say. But for me to tell him that I wasn't okay and for me to tell him, hey, like that's an intense call. Like I was scared shitless. Like you could see his shoulders drop. And kind of some of that weight got taken off. And I think it's something as simple as that. Like, if we've been there, done that, like, I remember burning calls with you. It looks like nothing bothered you. And I'm guaranteeing stuff bothered you. But you don't want to show a kink in the armor. No. Right? And so where's that middle ground? Yeah. So I think us as officers or people that have been doing the job a long time, it's our job to say, hey, no, like, these are my emotions. Do you feel similar or whatever else? But I'm really encouraged that the the younger guys are willing to say no like i just went on this call and it was really crappy and this was hard and this sucks like i'll go do the job today tomorrow but it sucks how do you differentiate that between just bitching about the job you know if if we're getting this younger generation to talk more about it how do we encourage it and not see it as just bitching well if you don't like it don't do it mm-hmm, mm-hmm. oh yeah well and that's part of that's part of the problem is either suck it up or just quit or, or go do something else it's like i think that's literally pulling somebody aside saying hey is this job for you like i promised myself if i ever had another call that profoundly affected my mental health that i would quit doesn't matter if i had 19 and a half years in but i made the deal with myself that my life was more important than seeing something else but um i i just really think it's just having blunt conversations it truly is because i think uh, uh, let me ask you that can you tell the difference between somebody that's struggling and somebody that just thinks they're better than the job and that'd be a better way for me to say it is that i run calls with people that are just like either think they're above it or they're very mean to patients and it's like are you mean to patients because you've had some horrible calls or you've been through some trauma but i've also noticed that when you take that five minutes and talk to that person a lot of these people have their trauma, their anger and their frustration that they're taking out on patients is from childhood trauma. It's not from seeing a bad call. It's not from any of the other stuff. And some of these people that come into the job that have had a very horrible childhood or experienced some bad things, they're generally more prepared to do this job because they're like, yeah, that call sucked, but I also slept on the floor in like, I didn't have a house and I didn't have this. And I didn't have that. You know, and that also creates a situation where 
they treat a person like crap because they shouldn't be calling 911 because sure. blah, 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 blah. And it's like, well, it's our job. Like, we have to treat these people. But again, I think we don't spend enough time individually getting to know each other and hearing even five minutes of somebody's story. I'd agree. I don't think that we take our time getting to learn or know about these people. And I think it's easy in our position to be judgmental. You know, um, we see a lot of things that there are good reasons to be judgmental for, but we also see a lot of things that I think we jump the gun on and we shouldn't judge. Mm -hmm. For example, when you're walking into a house that's just messy, right? It's, mm -hmm. there's just trash everywhere. There's three kids running around. You don't see any toys. You're going back into the bedrooms. You're seeing that in the kids' rooms, there's nothing in there, you know, except blankets on the floor, but they have all the high-end electronics. They have an 85-inch screen TV on the wall. Uh, they have a TV. fancy car outside, but everything else is in shambles. Mm -hmm. You know, it's easy to jump and be like, you're terrible parents, you know? Or why did you spend all that money on those electronics when you have three kids who don't have anything and aren't wearing any clothes running around the house right now? Um, it's good for us to step back and take a second and think about what we would, we, what we would do if we were in those positions. Well, and you said it yourself, is somebody's worst call is always different. And what if you grew up in that house and you made it out of that house, but you have to go back and see that on a regular basis? So, yeah, I, I really think once you get to know, truly get to know who somebody is, because I was very guilty of it, and I, I know I get judged for it with, you create a persona, you create this idea of what you want people to see. And, like, I'm very insecure. I, I don't like much of anything about myself and that's not a fishing thing that's a, like a truly how I feel but I did the exact opposite where I created a persona where like I was a joking a lot or I was the wife of the party or I was this or I was that and when I was drinking a ton it was like oh that's just Robert and it's like no like that's not who Robert is it's just Robert's becoming that and he's hiding behind that and so I had to do that self-evaluation and luckily the people that really know me and, and care about me know who I actually am but I think that we all hide behind certain things and anger is a pretty big one on the job especially I saw a meme yesterday or the day before I don't remember but it one of my friends posted it and I, you're probably friends with that same person but they they posted about how anger is actually a shield for sadness and that strung a bell. You know, you think about it and you're like, oh, that makes so much sense. Mm -hmm. Okay, okay. Yeah, that's that's a good one. I think a lot of us get angry when we're going on that, you know, that eighth call of the day. And it usually is a stubbed toe or something insignificant that we consider insignificant, you know, that isn't necessarily insignificant, insignificant for that patient. Um, and it's easy for us to get angry about that. No, and it's crazy you said that because I had seen that too, but it's just that it bothered me a lot when I saw that because that's exactly what it is. And that's the number one thing that I'm dealing with right now today is my anger issues and like how quickly I can throw up a wall or have attitude. And it's a thousand percent because I'm sad. It's not because ever because I'm angry. It's because I'm sad about X, Y, or Z. And it's much easier to just throw up a wall and be on the attack than it is to say, hey, I'm sad, just hold me. Yeah. And so we'll get there. 
We will. I think EMS in general, first responders are all heading in a good direction. You know, not just for here, but for the world in general. I think we'll get there. One podcast at a time. Yeah, right. (laughs) All right, brother. So we're coming up to an end. Mm -hmm. Um, Do you want to talk a little bit more about Skulls for Hope or Next Rung? Yeah, if anybody ever is in need, kind of the big thing about this mental health stuff, like we do the podcast and we're out here um, talking uh, publicly, but nobody has to. And you're never going to have to. But if you are struggling and you aren't doing well or you don't know where to go or who to talk to, one of the amazing things about Next Rung, and you can find them at nextrung.org. I should have our number memorized by now, but you can find our number online as well. Um, We have a dedicated, I think we're 30 plus now, uh, first responders that are available 24-7, 365, that if you're in crisis, you can call us, whether it's from as simple as having a conversation, just getting something out of your chest, if you want to find a counselor, but you don't know how to get that counselor, if you need to go to rehab, if you, anything you need as a human being, as a first responder, we will be there um, to just talk to you or talk you through what you need to do. If you're at a rural department or you're in a situation where you can't afford counseling, um, we can help you supplement those first couple of counseling sessions um to take care of you uh skulls for hope is a community that we have that's kind of trying to end the stigma of mental health and letting people know it's okay to not be okay um i began making bracelets probably about eight years ago nine years ago um after my worst call and it was to center myself and the skull uh, from skulls for hope represents the impermanence of life that everything that lives dies and you have to live every day to its fullest. And we talk about how hard it is to tell people like, hey, if you're in crisis, if you need something, reach out to me. Um, when I didn't want to share my story, when I didn't want to talk, I always had this bracelet on that I could look at and it was something concrete that I could touch and it could remind me that I wasn't alone, that I, I it recentered myself. And what's been really, really, really cool about the community um, in the last five or six years is that bracelets go out across the country, sometimes internationally, but Everybody shares their story. Everybody talks about it and, and says like it recenters them. And so it's giving you something concrete to start that conversation and build that community. Um, we're a new nonprofit. And so we're trying to kind of envelop anybody that's in need um, and anybody that's in crisis or whatever you need. So same thing. Um, if, you're, if anybody ever needs anything, you're always welcome to reach out. We're just trying to create that community. If you go on social media, um, we're always willing to have people if they want to share their stories, even as a ghostwriter. Um, but it should be a safe place you can go and read our stories on on the uh, Instagram or Facebook and say, hey, that's me. Or I feel that way too. Or I needed to see this or hear this today. So just trying to build a community. Cool. Well, thanks, man. I appreciate you coming out today. Thank you for having it's me. A great, great stories, man. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the 911 Nonsense Podcast. Please remember to comment, review, and share with friends if you enjoyed this episode. If you're interested, we sell all kinds of noon merch at samspursuit.com. Again, thanks for listening and see you next week.